Did you ever think you were made it? I feel I'm so close, I could taste sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we get no value to haters. Now they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. I'm Patrick, host of Valley Team, and today I'm sitting down with Daniel Z. Lieberman, Professor Daniel Z. Lieberman. We talk about the effects of dopamine and why power, politics, sex, porn, marriage, love, all of these crazy things we talk about in today's sit-down, and I got him to admit what was his favorite magazine as a boy and you're going to be shocked what magazine this professor daniel z lieberman tells us his favorite magazine and other things it's just a fun interview enjoy this session here dr daniel lieberman thank you for coming out that's a pretty strong statement right there to say determine the fate of human race what do you think about that well you know it is pretty strong uh, and it gets a lot of attention yeah um but we didn't write that title until we finished writing the book and the uh, second last chapter in the book is all about the ways this chemical, dopamine, could bring the world to an end. And, and you know, we hear about it all the time. I know, I think the first time it was used, what was it, 1957, some timeline I read about some lady, Karen. I don't know if it's, uh, maybe you can tell us about it, where the word dopamine came about. Yeah, so um, originally we thought that this chemical was simply a precursor molecule to make a different chemical in the brain called norepinephrine. Okay. That's closely related to adrenaline, the fight or flight molecule. So um, it was just thought that it was this intermediate step, not important. Um, then it turned out that it was a neurotransmitter in its own right. A neurotransmitter being a chemical the brain uses to process information. Since then, we found out it's probably one of the single most important neurotransmitters in the brain, responsible for an unbelievably broad variety of behaviors in human beings. Have we already figured out enough of this, or is there more to learn about this uh, dopamine? You understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Like, are, we, are we at a place where our data is clear enough, where we can trust the data and the studies that are coming out, or are we still years behind it? There's, there's always more to learn. Yeah. And um, psychiatry, the uh, study of the brain, I think could be considered the youngest of the medical scientists simply because the brain is so complex. Um, that said, if you Google the different molecules, Google Scholar, which looks at the, um, the medical journals, um, the most articles you're going to find, the most hits are going to be dopamine. That's the one scientists are most interested in. So we don't know everything there is to know, but we know a lot. And, and a lot of the studies, the most important studies, have been replicated. So we can have a fair amount of confidence. Well, I'm, in I'm looking forward to getting more educated on this dopamine thing that we're talking about here. And it's not a drug, but it plays as a form of it. But yeah. here's the thing before we get into it. Mm. What, what made you want to say, I want to study brains? I mean, at what point did you decide, I want to be a psychiatrist? How did that happen? Well, um, when I was in college, I studied philosophy. Okay. Uh, I went to a special college called St. John's College. Mm -hmm. What's special about it is there are no textbooks, there are no lectures, and there are no tests. What you do is you read original sources, the great books of Western civilization, and you get together in small groups and discuss them and write about them. So I came out of there thinking, all right, it's all about the human mind. That, that's where everything that's beautiful comes from. It's where everything that's ugly comes from as well. It's where everything that's important comes from. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, um, I went to Japan because I had no job and a friend of mine was Japanese. He said, I get a job over there teaching English. 
And while I was there, I ran across uh, the writings of a psychologist, Carl Jung. Mm -hmm. And reading him, I decided that's what I want to do. I want to spend my career studying the brain. What, what did he say that inspired you? Was there any specific thing that stuck? Um, it, it was... It was the way he showed that the human brain is a combination of two things. One is volition. That's the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. The other is the biological substrate. That's the material we've got to work with. And I think that that second part we neglect. You know, it's easy to say, well, I can't control my body, especially as you get older, Patrick. Uh, yeah, you know, that's true, absolutely. Tougher to get up in the morning. It's, it it's gets tougher. tougher to get a lot of things to get up, you know, in the morning, as yeah. you get older. But yeah, so. But we think about our mind, the yeah. thing between our ears, is we got total control over it. I want to think about a giraffe, I want to think about a cup of coffee. I can think about anything mm -hmm. I want. And that's absolutely not true. Um, the biological substrate of our brain, including the, the neurotransmitters like dopamine in our brain, they determine so much of our experience. And a lot of people don't realize just how much that is. Is there any linkage between why you wanted to study this or with anybody in your family upbringing where you're like, this reminds me of the experience I had with my dad or my mother or my sister or my uncle or somebody where you said, I want to go deeper. Because you know, sometimes when it comes to health, a lot of my friends who are doctors or they go into this mode, there is somebody in their lives that inspired them to go even deeper. Was there any of that for you or not at all? There really wasn't. I came from a family of lawyers. Uh, my father was a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer, my uncle was a lawyer, and I was pretty sure I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, and so one, one year, one summer, I worked in my father's law firm and I'd never been more bored in my life. I said, I'm not going to become so a lawyer. So you know you were going to do it yeah. right off the bat. Yeah. So you go from lawyer to wanting to be study philosophy? Well, you know, I thought that um, I was going to be an engineer because I loved science. Got it. And then you know how when you're in high school, colleges send you um, this PR stuff? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so um, St. John's College, their PR stuff is a list of the books you read. Uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Iliad, uh, Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, Newton, Einstein. I looked at this list and I said, I got to read these books. I, I don't think I can be an educated person without reading these books. What a great way to market, by the way. Yeah. What a great, I mean, if you, if you know, because somebody's going to read and say, I don't care to know about any of these guys, but someone's going to read and say, I want to know everything about these guys. So it's going to attract the people that you want. Were you yeah. always a reader and have an interest in philosophy? I was always a reader. Okay. Not necessarily an interest in philosophy, but I was the kid who, who wanted to stay inside and read while other people were out playing football. That was you. Yeah. So we like the four point something GPA, you did great in school, the whole nine, that kind of a kid? Not quite that good, okay. but... Uh, uh, yeah, I read a lot. Yeah, you read a lot. Yeah, That's yeah. cool. My kid is, uh, uh, this summer, he read 70 books. Very proud wow. of this kid. Yeah, he's, uh, he's seven years old. So he's, oh, my uh, gosh. He's all about reading. And every Amazing. time I start reading something, he just wants to come next to me. It's one of the things I wanted to pass to these kids because I don't jump high. I may be 6'5", but I don't jump high. I don't play good basketball or baseball. If you ever see me throw a first pitch, I threw a first pitch at a game uh, a month ago, and uh -huh. it was the most embarrassing first pitch you'll ever see in your oh, life. Geez. So the only thing I can pass on to these guys is, hey, if you get reading going, because that's what changed your dad's life. But okay, so your dad's a lawyer, your grandfather's a lawyer, the same grandfather that you told me that was in Germany, or Different the other one. side? Different other side, Okay, yeah. how about that grandfather, if you can talk about him, because he's got an interesting story. He's got an interesting story, yeah. Um, my father and my father's family um, were born in Germany, um, and they were Jews, and they had a big family there. They'd come from Poland, um, and my grandfather was a furrier, um, he made fur coats mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. 
and um, he moved to Berlin because they, they, needed, um, they needed people in that industry there. Nazis came to power and people started saying, hey, you need to get out. Um, he didn't want to get out. He, he had his life there. He had a store there, his business there. He said, look, I was invited here. Um, no one's going to do anything to me. I'm working hard. I'm, I'm a good citizen. Of course, he was wrong. Um, and he waited and waited and waited. He had a, um, an apprentice that he was teaching the business, young, young German man, uh, member of the Nazi youth. Get out of here. One day he comes, he said, you got to get out. Tomorrow it's going down. They're going to take you, wow. your whole family away, out now. They left that night, little suitcase, left everything behind, um, made it out one step ahead of the Nazis, came to the United States. You ever seen the movie Pianist? I haven't seen that, Okay, no. if you haven't seen it, it's a really, really good movie. It's the whole story is this guy that played very good piano, and the Nazi soldiers took a liking in him when he would play, and they kind of helped him save, and he helped some guys. But it's a very similar story. When you hear these stories, it's a very admirable to have that kid do something like that, knowing he's part of the youth uh, Nazi. It just tells That's you, right. even then, there's some heart in these kids to say, I want to save this guy's life. That's the beautiful part of the story, yeah. So what did your grandpa end up doing when he came out here? He, um, he, started, he opened a furrier in Buffalo, New York. That's where I was born. Successful? Um, yes, I would say successful. Okay. You know, he didn't, get, he didn't have a chain of them, but he had one, and um, he had a good middle-class life. Uh, sent my father to law school, sent my uncle to medical school. Um, good American for him. Dream. Are you kidding me? That's great. That's, that's exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you're raising this family. And by the way, mother's side, what did, what did your mom do? Your mother was? Uh, they had been in Buffalo for uh, a number of generations. Okay. Um, yeah, they came. Uh, interesting story on that side of the family, if I can tell it. Sure. Uh, my great-grandfather was in the Russian army. And um, they, were, they were involved in some kind of retreat. I don't even know what war it is. But his boots fell apart. And, and he couldn't walk all these miles. So they had to leave him um, hidden in some town. Uh, rest of his uh, company, they make it to this town they're going to, they all get on a train, train is bombed, everybody is killed. Uh, his family thought that he had been killed too, and I don't know, months, years later he shows up, he said, hey, I missed the train, my boots wore out. Wow. Yeah, so I feel pretty lucky, lucky wow. to be here on both sides. So you sides. got right jeans right there. <laughs> I got luck. So, so they meet in Buffalo. Yeah. Uh, are you a Bills fan or no? Are you? Um, I, I've been in the past. But uh, not I, right now? I've suffered enough. Okay, yeah. got it. I used to be a diehard Bills fan when I came to the stage. You did? I was a Thurman Thomas, B.B., Bryce Pop, you know, uh, uh, Bruce Doug Smith, Flutie. Doug Flutie, all of those guys. Yeah. I was a diehard Bills fan, but that's a whole different. They're doing actually pretty okay right now. They are for, for once. So, so you go from there, you go to St. John, you study all these philosophers. Which one of the philosophers stuck out to you, not in Japan? I'm talking about here, all these people you're studying. Who stuck out to you as the one that had the biggest positive influence? And was there anybody who said, this guy's off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the one that had the biggest positive influence was Plato. You know, he wrote about Socrates. Mm -hmm. um, and he wrote about how you really need to carefully test the things you believe with reason. Um, because the things that we intuitively think are true... It's tough to do for a lot of people. They're not always true. That's right. And, and you know, intuition is effortless. And, and, and that's not to say it's valueless. Intuition it, is effortless. It just comes to us. Mm -hmm. It's a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And it can be enormously valuable. Uh, and it's often right. But we got to test it. A and it takes effort to test it with reason. And a lot of times we skip that step. Uh, but he made the point that that's very, very important. A and some interesting things come out of it. I mean, he asked the most fundamental questions. What is justice? What is the good? 
um, and got some very interesting, interesting things that came out of it. So that's Plato. How about the one that was the most wackiest guy? Because, you know, philosophers, they, they, they have a very interesting... They can be pretty wacky. Yes. Yeah. Um, boy, I, I, I wasn't a big fan of the existentialists. Um, you know, the existentialists, the way I interpreted them, and, and I'm not, certainly not an expert in existentialism, sure. but they basically say there's no help out there. You're on your own. Um, there's no God. Um, there's, there's, there's no meaning. Uh, you have to create all the meaning yourself. You live in a cold, meaningless universe. Deal with it. You can't buy that. No, one. I don't buy that. How about Stoicism? What, what did you think about like Seneca Stoicism. or, or yeah. you know, uh, or Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius? Right. Nothing is good or bad. It's only how you perceive yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think it's a beautiful philosophy. I, I think though it may be a little bit over optimistic in terms of the strength that human beings have. Uh, th these guys were amazing that, that they could do that, they could live their life that way. I think it's pretty tough for the ordinary person, though. To live that way. And remember, they did this at a tough time. Today, wouldn't it be easier to live that today versus then? Maybe. Maybe. You know, things have gotten a lot better for us from a material sense. Yeah. I'm not sure things have gotten any better from an emotional sense, though. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Tell I, us more. I mean, it, it's easy to go out and buy a cell phone. Mm -hmm. It's easy to go out and buy a new car. Mm -hmm. But is that going to get you happiness? It's one of the things we talk about in the book, um, that there's a difference between wanting something and liking it once you get it. There's a difference between your brain driving you to collect resources that are going to be useful from a survival evolutionary point of view. There's a difference between that and living a happy, fulfilling, satisfying life of contentment. And, and I'm not sure all of the prosperity and technology we have helps us all that much with the latter. You don't think? So, so let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, scriptures, different religions, they all talk about contentment, you know, yeah. finding ways to get to that point. What would the world look like if everybody was content? It, it wouldn't. Yeah, so contentment. <laughs> you see what yeah, I'm saying? That's right. So, it wouldn't work. No, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Because I, like, I think about that, right? You sit there and I say, okay, let's just say you and I sit down and we agree on everything. What right. a boring dinner. Yeah, that's right. Can you imagine right. if we go to dinner and we're sitting down and we're like, okay, yeah, I agree. How about this? Cool. How about this? Fine. All right, so, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you want to you know go, there's got to be a little bit of that, I feel. so. That's right. you got to have the spark. Right? you got to have the spark of conflict. I, I think so, because, you know, when a lot of people come and tell me, uh, uh, the, like, uh, how do you view world peace? Tell me what you think about world peace. When somebody says, we got to have world peace, how do you process that? As a psychiatrist, how do you process that? Um, it, it's a beautiful idea. It's probably realist, un unrealistic. It's though. unrealistic. It's not the way the human brain evolved. We we evolved to fight because we 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 grew up. I mean, we evolved in very difficult circumstances. Do you think that's okay? I I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I don't think it's a value judgment. I think it's a fact. That's those. That's the way our DNA is in our body, and we we can't do anything about so it. So you're making it like a law of gravity. It's it's just gonna be that way. There's nothing we can do about it. That's it. See, I I kind of agree with you there, but sometimes you got a lot of people that want to force change, and when you try to force change, you create enemies. I uh, I don't know if you ever read the book by Dr. Hawkins, uh, Power versus Force. I don't know if you've ever read no, the book I've Power never, versus I read Force. That. It was on one of Oprah's uh, top 10 lists 20 years ago or something like that. And I read this book 17 years ago. 
And he says that everybody has certain levels that you go through from the lowest level to the highest level of consciousness, enlightenment being at the highest, then it's peace, joy, love, and then one of the highest levels he has below love is reason, okay? Mm -hmm. Learning mm -hmm. how to reason. Yeah. Then below reason is, I think it's willingness, acceptance, you know, uh, neutrality, meaning I can sit down with you and you can have a view and he can have a view and I can get along with both of you guys because I can be neutral and kind of be able to have the same uh, relationship with both. And then the f first lowest level of consciousness, he says that it's in a good area is courage. You have the mm -hmm. courage to face your fears. And then below it at the lowest, I think it's shame, apathy, grief, pride, anger, you know, desire, like desire, like sex desire, not desire to do something big with your life. And he breaks these levels down. Very, very interesting when you think about it. So for me, it's when you said uh, uh, world peace, can it exist? You know, I don't think it's uh, something that is a good thing or a bad thing. It's a fact. It's something that's going to happen. How, how do you teach for all of us to learn how to reason better? How do we do that? How do we get a society to be opening open to reasoning more with each other. How do we get to that kind of a place? I think the first step is to identify the challenges uh, because an important question is, well, why don't we reason all the time, right? Uh, why aren't we rational creatures? Because a lot of times when we behave irrationally, we're hurting ourselves more than anyone else. So, you know, we've got, we've got these biological drives uh, that are manifested in the organization of our brain anatomy. And that's the same with other animals. We've got a lot in common with other animals. We share 50% of our genes with bananas and 99% of our genes with chimpanzees. So 50% of my genes are tied to bananas? They're, they're the exact same genes as bananas have. Get out of here. 50%. Really? Yeah, 99%. Same as chimpanzees have. Maybe that's why that art sold for 120 grand with that banana sticker. I don't know that if you saw that. Brother. That's my brother. That's my brother. I recommend you. So 50% with bananas. That's right. So then 99% with chimpanzees. That's right. So what's um, the 1% that's different? 1% is what makes us human. And in that little tiny piece that makes us human, we got reason. And reason completely changed the story. Because in some ways, reason has allowed us not completely, but to partially sever ourselves from our biological roots. We have to eat, we have to get calories. Um, we're at the mercy of the physical laws, but our brains can rise above it and, and look at abstract laws. Uh, and that ability to reason is what has allowed us to become the dominant race on this earth through technology, through inventions, um, through the ability to, in some ways, act against our biological nature when that's in our best interest. But we have to remember it's hard because reason is powerful in what it's able to do, but it is weak in terms of its motive force inside of our brains. Meaning? Our instincts are much more powerful. So if I instinctually want something, maybe it's food, maybe it's sex, but my reason tells me, hey, maybe that's not the right thing for you to do. It's going to be tough for reason to win that battle. Instinct, oh, no doubt about instinct it. Is, yeah. a lot, is a lot stronger. So instinct wins over reason. Does it have anything to do with pleasure and pain or not at all? I think it does. I think it does. You know, um, one of the things I do is treat people with drug addiction. And in that case, you really see the battle between reason and instinct. Mm -hmm. In drug addiction, 
instinct in a way has been twisted um, to want nothing more than to use drugs that's destroying a person's life. Um, so it's, it's a little bit different than ordinary instinct, but it, it's so powerful. People will give up their jobs, their families, their health, their homes. They'll give up everything to feed their brain with this toxic substance. And their reason knows that this is the wrong thing to do, but it's powerless. And so what they try to do is use willpower. They say, all right, I know what the right thing to do is. I, I will simply will it mm -hmm. to be thus doesn't work. It doesn't work. Willpower is like a muscle in that it fatigues very easily. And I can give you an example of that if you're interested wow. in it. Sure, yeah. So they did this study called the Chocolates and Radishes study. They brought people in a room and on the table was freshly baked chocolate chip cookie mm -hmm. and a bowl of radishes. And half the people, they said, hey, go ahead and eat the cookies. The other half, they said, you can only eat the radishes. Afterwards, they had them work on a problem that was impossible. They didn't tell them it was impossible. And they timed how long they worked at it. Who do you think worked at it longer? Chocolate. Yeah, because the radish people had already used up all their willpower not eating the cookies. Get out of here. Yeah. So willpower is Very weak. interesting. So we teach them it's better to be smart than strong. If you're going to a party where alcohol is going to be served and you're an alcoholic and you can't drink, don't rely on willpower. Use strategy. Bring a sober buddy who can look after you and make sure you're not going to drink. Figure out some way to outsmart instinct rather than trying to take it head on with willpower. Can you, can you work on it enough where you're eventually strong on your own? Is that a permanent strategy? It, it's a permanent strategy. You can strengthen your willpower. That's what the Stoics did. The Stoics were like willpower superheroes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to do. And um, hard to do, why? Because why? Just because of the nature of the willpower circuits. They're just not that strong. So, so is it a transferable thing to somebody else? Or some people are wired to have a stronger willpower than somebody else? I think they're wired. Oh, you, you believe that? Yeah, well, I think it's just like muscles. You know, I can build up muscles, but I'm never going to be like a bodybuilder, mm. right? So a big part of it's genetic, and then some of it is exercising, whether you're exercising your will or your muscles. You can build it up a little bit. I just don't think it's a good yeah. strategy to rely on it. And that's been your experiences dealing with people that uh, are on drugs. Absolutely, yeah. So what role does dopamine play there? So, you know, a lot of people have heard about dopamine as the pleasure molecule. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing it does. Dopamine was originally made to um, make us desire things that will benefit us evolutionarily and reward us when we do it. So eat when you're hungry, uh, drink when you're thirsty, uh, reproduction, winning competitions. These are natural things. The reason why drugs are so dangerous is because they short-circuit these survival pathways. Um, they hijack the dopamine system. And instead of gently stimulating it, like winning a competition would do or eating a nice meal, they slam it with a chemical blast that outweighs any natural behaviors. Now, your brain develops priorities in large part based on how much dopamine it's going to get, all right? So remember the old show, Let's Make a Deal? Mm -hmm. All right, what do you want? $100 or what's behind door number two? There's a good chance what's behind door number two is like a car or something, right? So they always pick door number two. Mm -hmm. That's going to give you more dopamine, all right? Now, 
what would you do? If uh, something you value is at risk and your child's life is at risk, you're gonna go after your child, of course. Sure. That's gonna give you more dopamine beyond any moral, rational thing. You're gonna instinctively save your child. Now, the thing about drugs is because they artificially stimulate the circuit, they produce more dopamine than any other natural behavior. Any. Any. And so when we see some poor guy out on the street who's lost his family, his job, his home, his money, for his drug, we say, geez, that looks completely irrational. But from the inside, it's rational. To him or to you? To him. To it's him. rational to him because he's choosing the bigger dopamine hit. It's just as rational as giving up the $100 for door number two. It feels like the right thing to do. What drug produces the highest level of dopamine? Do we know that? Um, cocaine produces pretty high levels. Um, heroin produces pretty high levels. Is heroin higher than cocaine? Um, I don't think so, but heroin um, does other things as well, which makes it more addictive than cocaine. I had a friend who uh, committed suicide, and he mm -hmm. was taking 50 Vicodins a day. Oh, best friend, my best friend in the world. And I took him to a uh, rehab center in Tarzana, 14 days. It was like 400 bucks a day, and he was able to stay disciplined for a while. And then eventually, got out was good, and he got back on Vicodin. Couldn't get off Vicodin. Eventually, one day, May 5th, he's, he's done, and obviously... He's not here with us. And many people came back and said it was suicide because of him taking too many Vicodins. Mm. What is it with Vicodin? Doctors have told me Vicodin and heroin are the two toughest ones to get off of. Yes. What, what makes it so tough to get off of those two things? It's twofold. Uh, it's reward and punishment. The reward is that when you take it, it not only stimulates dopamine, it stimulates different kinds of pleasure molecules as well. Uh, dopamine is a rush of pleasure. Uh, it's like the pleasure you feel when you're excited and enthusiastic mm -hmm. about something. It's the pleasure you feel when you hit the home run or score the soccer goal. But there's a different kind of pleasure. There's a contentment pleasure where you feel like everything in the world is perfectly okay. Heroin, Vicodin, the other opioids, they give you both of those. And, and, and that's an unbelievably seductive they feeling. They give you both of those. They give you both of those. I don't know of any other drug that does. I don't know of any, uh, any natural behavior, maybe except outside of sex, that gives you both of those things. Um, and, and so it, it's seductive and it's dangerous. That's the reward. The punishment is that if you get addicted to it and then you stop using it, you go into horrible withdrawal. Uh, and it, it's painful, it's a terrible, terrible experience. So it's got you on both sides. It's incredible, yeah. I mean, you, have you seen the movie Johnny Cash, Walk the Line? I didn't see that, Oh no. my gosh, I mean, that, you, you're missing a few movies, right? I'm not I a big think, movie guy. You're yeah. not a big movie I'm guy? I'm not a big movie guy. Walk the Line is uh -huh. like mandatory. I mean, I think if you went to my school of psychiatry, you would have to watch uh, Walk the Line. It'd be uh -huh. mandatory, right? Before we study Plato or Aristotle, you We're gotta watch, watch movies. philosopher Johnny Cash. He had a lot of good philosophies in life. But there's this one scene where he's in bed and he's trying to go through it and you're seeing him sweating and the guy's coming from the other side to sell him the heroin and the drugs that he's addicted to and his father-in-law comes out with a shotgun to you know, scare the other guy. It's a real unique scene because it shows the example of how it all starts. Lamar Odom did an interview recently and he said, guy asked him a question, how'd you get into cocaine? And this video went viral. He says, he says uh, you know, uh, he was a weed guy, you know. I used to party in LA, I'd go to all these clubs off of Sunset, and he was always there, but he was always a weak guy. He says one day, he gets invited by this uh, uh, swinger couple, okay, 
They invite him over and they say, hey, I want you to come over. My wife likes you. It was kind of confusing. I've never done this before. So he says, then they tell him to try cocaine. He says, mm -hmm. the first time I tried cocaine, every other time I tried it was about experiencing what it was like the first time I did it. Right. Is that pretty common with all of them or it's no? It's very common. It's, it's very common, yes. Um, dopamine responds to novelty. It responds to things. And we can relate to that. Um, think about you buy, I don't know, you buy a new coat. It's a beautiful coat. Uh, you wear it for the first time. It gives you all kinds of pleasure. You're never going to get pleasure like that again from wearing that mm. coat. Um, once you do it again, you don't get the same burst of dopamine. Is it similar to puppy love? Like your first puppy love, where you, is, is, it, is it where that puppy love you're never going to experience again? Or, you know, is it kind of like that? Maybe, maybe. Love is an amazing thing. Falling in love is an amazing thing. I think every time we fall in love, the, the entire world is brand new. Um, I think falling in love is special. So it's different than... I, yeah, I think falling in love gives you what nothing else can give you. But think about, think about um, you're working, you get a big promotion, yeah. you get a big raise. You get that raise for the first time, you see that big paycheck, you got tons of dopamine. Second month, third month, fourth month, little by little. You don't think so? You don't think like, like if I go from 10 bucks an hour to 20 bucks an hour to first time I make six figures or first time I make a million, you think in six figures produce more dopamine than a million did? That's what you're saying? No. What, what I'm saying is you're now making six figures. You're getting a paycheck every month. Gradually it's going up. Yeah. Or, or you know, let, let's say, so when I was a resident, when I was training to be a psychiatrist, I, I was getting paid very, very little. Uh, then I became a faculty member and my paycheck just jumped. Mm -hmm. First time I got that paycheck, I was in seventh heaven. Second time I got it, oh, this is great. Third time, fourth. By the fifth time I got the paycheck, it was the same old, same old. Got it. Yeah. So it's similar to that when you get into cocaine or things, uh, drugs like that. Yeah. Do they all pretty much fall into the same category? Or they do. Okay. They do. They so, all do that. So what is the difference between a dopamine experience I have uh, uh, from drugs, you know, from uh, sex, you know, from high, from alcohol? How different are those things? I would say the dopamine experience itself is probably similar, but remember the brain's very complicated and so in addition to dopamine you've got all kinds of other chemicals doing their thing at the same time. It's more like a symphony than a single instrument playing a tune. So what's going to make all of these different dopaminergic experiences different are the different instruments, the other neurotransmitters, brain chemicals that are going on. Uh, so, so, for instance, if I'm addicted to alcohol, if I'm addicted to cocaine, if I'm addicted to sex, I can't have enough sex. I'm a sex addict, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a drug addict. Mm -hmm. Is it extremely different or is there there's a lot of there's, similarities? There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similarities. And, and, and it's always chasing what you don't have. Um, I write about a patient in the book who is a sex addict. And, um, you know, he's one of these guys who would go to bars and he'd pick women up. And, take him home and, he, and he'd sleep with them. And what he, what he started to notice was that um, as soon as he had sex with them, he completely lost interest in them. Um, they were nothing to him after he had achieved that conquest. What's interesting is that um, that moment when he lost interest in them became earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. And it got to the point where he gave them his line. They agreed to go have sex with them. He lost interest at that moment. 
he didn't even want to have sex. As soon as the conquest was complete and the sex was now a sure thing, he lost interest in it. And that's the thing about dopamine. Dopamine doesn't give us pleasure for things we have. It can only make us want more. And that's where we got the title from, the molecule of more. Once you get it, dopamine shuts off. Once you get it, dopamine shuts off. So how different is drugs, alcohol, sex versus social media? All right. Well, let, let, me, let me say a little bit more about once you get it, dopamine shuts off. Okay. Because I think the best way to understand that is with buyer's remorse. You think about something that you were incredibly excited about buying. Okay. Um, and you imagine, it, for example, um, I got a Mazda Miata, which I absolutely love. It's so much fun to drive. Before I got that, I would spend hours and hours on the internet reading about it, you know, going to these sites where owners were talking about it. Um, and I was so excited. I thought my life is going to be completely different once I got it. I love this thing. I've had it for 10 years. It's a wonderful car. But once I got it, I stopped going on the internet to read about it. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it, but it was no longer excitement. I didn't exactly have buyer's remorse, but my attitude about it changed from desire, excitement, and enthusiasm to just kind of more of a quiet enjoyment. So let's talk about social media. Um, social media gets you addicted by always promising you more. There's always this sense, if I'm not on social media, I'm going to miss out on something. I need to get more clicks. I need to get more likes. I need to get more friends. Um, have you ever been kind of scrolling through your social media, um, looking at these different stories, looking at these different posts, and you realize, I'm miserable. I should be doing something else. This is boring. Um, this is making me sad. But you can't stop. Because what you're afraid of is that there's something down there that might be important. There's something down there that might give you more, might make your life better, and so you just can't stop. And that's dopamine pushing you along. How different is it with when it was TV and no social media and people watching TV at night or consuming the news by reading the newspaper? How different is it today than then? The difference is that the news was almost never about you. Social media is all about you. And that gives you the biggest dopamine hit. Because remember, the point of dopamine is evolutionary success. So dopamine is always scanning the environment. What has the potential to influence my future well-being? You look on the news, all right, the weather report does, you know, the traffic report does. Uh, maybe there's something that's going to influence you. But most of it really doesn't influence you all that much. With social media, everything does. And that's why you get so much more of a dopamine hit and why it, it, it can be wonderful, it can be pleasurable, uh, we can make all kinds of great connections, but with great power comes great danger as well. What's that? What's the worst danger? What's the worst thing we're, uh, that could happen with this? The, the danger is that it's no longer a tool to make your life better. It becomes a sink where it absorbs all of your time, all of your focus, all of your energy, and everything else around it shrivels. Everything around it shrivels. So you stop paying attention to the people in your life because all you're worried about is getting more dopamine off of social media. That's right. It's the holiday season, yeah. right? Um, we get together with friends and family. Um, this is our chance. Uh, maybe we only see them once a year. 
Um, this is our chance to enjoy them. We all pull out our phones and we start scrolling. I was doing a radio interview the other day uh, about the holidays, and the interviewer was telling me about how um, Christmas had been the favorite time of year for his mother, and, and she was gone now. And, and every Christmas, the most meaningful thing he did was think about her and remember those past Christmases he had with her. It, it, it's such a beautiful thing. It's such an important moment for him. And it tells us we've got to appreciate what we have now. There's going to come a time when the people we love are no longer with us. We need to put away our cell phones and make those memories. Enjoy them while they're here. Those messages have been made over and over and over again. What I'm asking is what is the worst, what are the consequences of us being addicted to, to social media, Instagram, Twitter, texting, Snap, all of the YouTube? What is the worst long-term consequences we could face with this? Well, how about the end of the human race? You think so? Yes. Tell me why. Um, so, you know, earlier we were talking about... Um, the advantage of modern society compared to ancient society and all the fantastic stuff that we have right now. Mm -hmm. We've got so much amazing, cool stuff. Um, we've got all kinds of things we can buy. We've got all kinds of things we can experience. Um, we, we, we've got great jobs. We, we do years and years and years and years of education. Something's got to give. What is it that we're giving up for all of these things? The answer is children. Once an economy reaches a certain point of prosperity, mm -hmm. the members of that economy lose interest in reproducing. All of the developed nations have a negative population growth rate. Uh, in order to keep the human race going, each woman needs to have 2.1 children. Uh, two children to um, replace her and the father, and one to replace uh, people who die before they have a chance to reproduce. In all developed countries, the birth rate is less than 2.1%. Even in developing nations, uh, we're seeing this happen. Uh, it, it's falling and falling and falling. We don't have a solution. There are some countries where they're now paying people to have children, and even that's not working. As we get more and more gadgets that attract our attention, um, they become substitutes for family. And ultimately, the human race is simply going to collapse unless something changes. So, interpretation, are you trying to tell everybody that's watching this to set the phone aside and have sex with somebody right that's now? That's exactly what that's I'm trying what to say. That's what you're saying. Yes, I mean, I that's right. That's what you were trying to say. <laughs> so, you're more promoting fun? more sex is what you're promoting. That's right. So, so, we're going back to the Woodstock days of just let's get together and have sex with each other. And, and listen, promoting, I'm not the first one to promote sex. In Singapore, they had this holiday called National Night. It was co-sponsored by Mentos, the fresh maker. <laughs> and, and it said, let your patriotism explode. <laughs> Mentos, you gotta go over there. You're in the wrong country, man. We gotta move you over there and tell us how it is when you come back. The question is if if uh, if uh, Bumble is there and if uh, uh, Tinder is there. That's the biggest factor. We have to make sure you can still swipe right or left over there. Let me go back to what you're saying. On, in all seriousness, okay. So this could cause us to not have enough babies. Okay, we need to have 2.1 babies to continue uh, the, the number, and everybody right now is less than 2.1. Now. The argument on the opposite side, I hear a lot of people saying is we're having way too many babies. What if eventually we are overpopulated? Then what happens? And then you got climate change people talking about the fact that 
the more population we have, we're producing carbon dioxide. That's not good because of the whole, you know, the theory, uh, 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 greenhouse, you know, the whole theory about the fact that sun's coming in and it's going out and it's getting thicker, so it's staying in here, it's getting uh, hotter, climate's changing. So your argument is complete opposite. We need to keep having babies versus yeah. people are saying let's not, because China right now you're limited. You can't have, uh, uh, I think their limit is to one baby per family right now. They changed it. When did they change it? They changed it uh, some time ago because what they realized was they were getting negative population growth. The problem with negative co population growth is you need young workers to support the older retired people who are drawing pensions. And what happened with China with their one-child policy is that they now realize they don't have enough young people to support the pensions of the older people. Is this a recent thing, like five, ten-year thing? Because at least ten years. At least ten. At years. least ten years. So, but yeah. if, am I am I allowed to have as many as I can? Uh, I believe so. And in fact, really? I believe. Can you check that guy real quick? I'm actually really check curious. That. I think the Chinese government has actually done a 180 wow. degrees, and they're now encouraging people to have more children. Wow, that is that is amazing. Because you're going to get social unrest otherwise. Um, how how are you going to pay the pensions of all these old people? Somebody may say they got one and a half billion people there, though. They've got a lot of people. But um, for uh, for an economy to grow, you've got to have a growing population. So, so what, what, uh, the number you're saying is 2.1, uh, you know, but you're saying they're not having more kids today because we are on the phones all the time. And even at night, if we're on your bed, you're looking at your phone, many people are falling asleep watching their phones. So the last thing you're thinking about is what? Hey, babe, you want to mess around or something? And you're already too tired to have sex because either she fell asleep or you fell asleep on your phone. So that's causing it to be less. And, and I tell you what the bigger problem is, is pornography. Um, pornography is so easily available today, and it is an addictive thing as well. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, if you wanted pornography, you had to go to the drugstore, pick up a magazine, and hope the person across the counter wasn't a member of what the opposite What was your favorite side. magazine? Let's see if you can admit. What was yours? I, you I, know, I, I was a penthouse fan. <laughs> I was also a penthouse fan. I was also a penthouse fan. I'm so proud of you. What a special moment. A professor and an entrepreneur agree. That but I tell you, one time, I'm going to tell you the funniest story. One time I, uh, uh, I come home. I'm 13, 14 years old. And you know where you hide the penthouse. You know, you, yeah, you underneath hide underneath the mattress. <laughs> so my mom comes and she's crying. Uh -huh. And I said, uh, why are you crying? She says, I just uh, saw something. It's, it's, I'm very disappointed in you. I said, what are you disappointed in? So she says, come with me. So I go to the room and I see all my best pictures oh, are sitting on top of my bed. Oh, boy. And she says, what is this? I said, Mom, what do you want me to masturbate to? I have to masturbate. <laughs> These are my favorite. I said, don't even wrinkle that one. That's one of my favorite ones. So I started setting them aside, and she was nice enough to not tear them apart. But I had to find a different place to hide it. So kids, if you're watching, it's a good place to hide. I don't know if you've done this one or not. The drawer, you know the bottom yeah, the drawer? Yeah, it's much better. I've, the, I've used that one too. My mom knew the bottom drawer, so I had to get good tape, and you oh bottom drawer it on, on the, what do you call it? So if this is the yeah, drawer. Yeah, the bottom of the drawer. I tape it right here. She yeah. never found it again. Legit place. That's a tip right there for you. By the way, don't tell your mom and dad. Parents, make sure they don't watch it. And then but, one day she took it to Goodwill, <laughs> and somebody got a surprise, <laughs> right? Somebody else got the surprise. But okay, so I agree, that, you know, because... Porn is more available today. And by the way, you know, yesterday's video we were making, we we're making a funny video about the whole annual review I was telling you about. Yeah. One of the examples was uh, uh, watching porn at work. Mm. As crazy as this sounds, I cannot tell you how many people, I've ran, I've ran sales offices for 20 years. 
I'd walk into one of my sales guys' office. I'm like, buddy, over here, honestly. You know, what do you do? So you're you really in the mood. <laughs> but even in the stall, you're sitting there and you know, you heard the next person next to you in the stall, you're hearing, uh, uh, I'm, oh, like, I'm at the bathroom right now. So uh -huh. I agree with you. So what is the worst effects that porn can have on, on our lives? Right. So, so pornography stimulates dopamine, okay. uh, just like drugs and, and food and all of these other things. And, um, you know, when, when we talk about people being addicted to something, what we want to do is we want to look at the influence it has on their life. Um, is it taking up large amounts of time in which they could be doing something else? Okay. Um, is it interfering? And of course, pornography does that. People who get addicted, they'll spend hours and hours per day. Um, is it interfering with relationships? With pornography, it's, it's a big yes. People who spend too much time uh, watching pornography, they have trouble performing uh, with regular sex. And the reason is that just like with alcohol, you might start out with some beer, maybe some wine, you progress uh, to hard liquor, mixed drinks, and finally you're just drinking the mm -hmm, vodka mm -hmm, right out of the mm -hmm. bottle. Same with pornography. You start out with tame stuff, and little by little, you go up to more and more extreme acts. When you're with a real human being, it just doesn't do it anymore. And so a lot of people have erectile dysfunction. Um, they don't even want to have sex with real people. One guy's quoted as saying, I'd rather stay at home and look at pornography than go out on a date because the pornography woman never says no and she never asks that is anything crazy. of me. It, it but, just, but I've heard it so many times. You're not the only person saying this. So I've had buddies say, like, uh, you know, Pamela Anderson did an interview on porn. Have you seen this one? I haven't seen it's that, It's incredible. No. By the way, Pamela, if you watch this, I'd love to have you here and talk about this topic because I think so many young men can uh, uh, learn from the way she describes it. She says, so one day she talks to her son about sex because you know the whole porn situation so she says i'm out there dating and all of a sudden i'm going out there and i'm uh, going on dates and i'm having sex and guys are trying stuff on me and they're slapping i'm like i don't like that mm. and they're trying things thinking that's what women that's like what women because like. what yeah. they see in a porn thinking that's exactly what everybody right. wants to do. And then when they do, somebody's disappointed, not realizing these are professional porn stars. I ran a gym in Chatsworth, okay? I don't know if you know Chatsworth uh, uh, 20 years ago was the 80% of porn was producing Chatsworth. 80% uh -huh. of porn in US, whatever porn people watch, 80% was in, uh, producing Chatsworth. So I'm the weekend manager at Chatsworth and I'm shutting down the gym. These porn stars would come to me and they would say, hey man, you know, can I use the gym? I just, we just want to do a quick 30 minute shoot at the end. You know, hey, I'd be in the pool, they're having sex. It means all over the place. We'd have to send these guys home all the time. Obviously my young guys, all, all, everybody wanted to stick around. They enjoyed it. Huh? They wanted to participate and contribute to society with uh -huh. these porn stars, but. I imagine it's not that sexy though when you're actually seeing the porn stars uh, shoot on the set. It, it, when you're 21 full of testosterone, it's, it's good very enough. sexy. It's good enough. I mean, All listen, right. <laughs> it's very sexy. Some of us, were, you're taking notepads and trying to take notes. But, but, but the point is, the sex with porn stars, with the camera off, is just, a, you know, different than a sex yeah. with, you know, uh, uh, on camera. So a lot of, so Pamela Andrews telling her son, saying, listen, if you're going to have sex with your girl, just know, all these other things you saw there, she's probably not going to like it. Okay, yeah. so if you, if you want to ask, ask first if she likes it before you do, because you may have, like all of us, if you've, if you've dated, if you've been with, you know, uh, many sexual partners, you'll always come across to one that likes to be hanging off the top mm -hmm. and a rope and freaking hit me with this and I want you to bring this, uh, you know, uh, all these weird things to use. I, I had a very interesting 
girlfriend of mine in the uh, Army that uh, liked a lot of extracurricular activities. But then you realize most of them are not really That's into right. that kind of stuff. So porn completely disappoints uh, men thinking girls want to do that. So what is the biggest threat with porn when virtual reality and augmented reality comes out? Yeah. I mean, you're sitting there and you're watching the porn. What effects do you think this is going to have long-term? Same thing, kids, not going on dates, same it's gonna exact make issues? It, it's going to make it worse and worse and worse. Yeah, we're going to get the virtual reality. It's going to become increasingly more real. And um, we're going to have, it's going to create unrealistic expectations, just as pornography has created this unrealistic expectation for Pamela Anderson's son, um, it's going to be like Netflix. Netflix knows what kind of movies you like. Um, these porn channels are going to learn what kind of women you like, what you like the women to do, and it's going to know you so well that no flesh and blood human being is going to be able to, com be able to compete with the pixels. And we're going to be less and less interested in human beings and more and more interested in pixels. You think so? I think so. Yeah. I, 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 hopefully, things will get bad enough that we begin to realize, hey, this is a dangerous thing. Uh, we've got to start looking at this the way we look at alcohol and cocaine and realize that this taps into our brain in such a powerful, primitive way that um, it's going to destroy our life. And, and yeah, I think so. You, I mean, you go back to biblical times, they would talk about the city of Corinth, right? You know, they say the oldest occupation in the world, you know what it is, right. prostitution, right? So, right? so is this really something that is a new thing that we're going to experience and it's going to really have that kind of a dramatic effect? Because, you know, sometimes my concern is when, when we go and we sell fear, obviously we all know fear sells, dramatically fear sells. When the market tanks, infomercial guys are blowing up because they know how to sell anything during that time because fear sharpens listening when you're afraid you listen. Sometimes I think we have to be a little bit more uh, uh, careful in this. You could disagree with me on this because sometimes we, we turn something as a crisis into an 18-year-old thinking about it. So because mm -hmm. they think it's even a bigger problem, sometimes they even get more obsessed about it and in their mind, they think it's going to be terrible for them versus not even paying attention to something a little bit, just kind of telling them to, you listen, it is something you got to be careful with. And then eventually it phases out. My dad, I would tell my dad about my kid, I'd say, you know what, dad, I'm having a very problem, a big problem with my son right now, my first son. He says, uh, what is the problem? I said, you know, you realize he's doing, you know, he wouldn't pick up after his stuff the other day. It's just really bad. He says, He's a year and a half. What are you talking about? <laughs> and so then he got two and a half years old. I had a different problem. I'm like, I, I don't know. I just, I'm concerned because, you know, when I tell him what to do, you know, he's just, uh, he, he's two and a half years old. Then he, you know, I don't know. When I talk to him sometimes, I don't think he's really talking to me. And it could, he's four years old. So every time that I thought something was an issue, it lasted two, three, four, five, mm -hmm. six months, and it went away. And it went away because... He graduated that. And sometimes for us, go back and think about the biggest thing you had to overcome when you were a kid, or I was a kid. So we were like, oh, somebody thought we're never going to get rid of it. Yeah. And then eventually got rid of it. You think sometimes we have to all to be held, held responsible to not make, uh, turn molehills into a mountain because the next generation is going to have a unnecessary fear uh, uh, injected into them that could prevent them from fulfilling their own life? What do you think about that? 
Well, you know, I think you make a very good point. If I sound like I'm on shrooms, just say, Pat, you sound like you're high. If I have a point, just tell me I have a point. I think you've got a point. Okay. Um, I think that human beings have good sense. And a lot of times the good sense wins over our destructive instinctual reactions. But um, look at cigarettes, for example. Um, Cigarettes are a terrible product. They're, they're extremely Horrible. addictive and, and they kill you. Absolutely. Right? More than marijuana, by the way. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Now, um, at some point, we as a society realized or decided whether we were, I don't know if we were right or wrong, we decided we have to start putting some restrictions on cigarettes because the product is simply too dangerous. Um, nicotine is a drug, it stimulates dopamine, it stimulates it too hard, and so when people get addicted, they lose control. We kind of felt like the basic good sense that human beings have is no match for this terribly addictive drug. Let me tell you why I think pornography might lead us in this direction. Let's say that we had two women. One was beautiful, one was kind of plain. One cared about your happiness more than anything else. The other was a normal, selfish human being. You'd obviously go for the beautiful one that cared about you. Now, what if she was a robot? Would that matter to you? 100%. It would. Absolutely. Why? Let's say that physically she was indistinguishable. No. Because uh, of feelings to me, I see where you're going with this, because feelings to me to know that I sincerely believe you chose to love me and accept me matters to me rather than fabricating that feeling by recoding you in a way where you love me just because I coded you properly. The robot would love anybody, but the human being is only going to love you. I think that that's a very good point. I mean, there are hmm. things Interesting. about human beings um, that are unfathomable depths. And if anything's going to save us, that's what's going to save us. Those unfathomable depths that you can't get from a computer. They did different way of watching porn. I mean, we view porn. So look, if you're watching this interview and watching porn, turn off the porn. I'm just telling you, turn the porn off and pay attention to the interview here. So, okay, so we've gone drugs, we've gone alcohol, we've gone sex. Did we really go into sex in depth? We kind of did. Uh, we did, we did do love though. Okay, let's go love. Let's because go I love. Know we said love is very different than everything else. So, yeah. so what's on your mind with love? Because right. love confuses the hell out of all of us. We become oh, yeah. different human beings. Oh yeah. Um, some people say that love is the, um, the most intensely pleasurable experience that human beings have. Uh, and we're talking about falling in love. Um, we might call it passionate love. That, you know, you see so many movies about it, so many books about it. It, it plays a very, very central role. And, and when you fall in love, you feel like the world is brand new. Mm -hmm. It's a very dopaminergic experience. And that's a wonderful thing. But the problem with love, of course, is that it doesn't last. And people always want to try to make this passionate love last, and they can't do it. And a lot of people don't understand that. And they think that when passionate the passionate love comes to an end, on average it lasts 12 months, uh, when the passionate love comes to an end, it means the relationship has come to an end. Something has gone wrong in the relationship. One of the things we write about in the book is that's not true. Uh, that's simply the normal way the brain works. Passionate love lasts about a year and then it turns into something different. It turns into something called companionate love. 
it's no longer using dopamine. Dopamine is about excitement. It's about more. It's about the future. That's what passionate love is. You know, rosy future, happily ever after. My life is never going to be the same. Companionate, though, uses pleasure chemicals in the brain that are about the present moment. It's about satisfaction and contentment. Uh, it's about the deep satisfaction of having another person's life deeply entwined with your own. So when you fall in love, you got to be ready for that shift. Uh, you got to look for it when it comes and, and say, yeah, it's sad that the roller coaster ride of passionate love is over, but this is a deeper, more enduring love uh, that in some ways um, is a better ride than the roller coaster. You know, most people can't uh, comprehend what you just said. Mm. It's a very deep topic, what you just said, because, uh, uh, you know, uh, the whole idea of newness, right? Mm -hmm. You have sex with somebody, like the, the moment you date somebody, and let's just say you guys get sexual, what time you get off work? You want to go to lunch over here? I'll pick you up. Let's go, you have a car, you go in the backseat, and then you do that for the first 90 days, and then, yeah, you're having sex, but not like before, then 12 months later, it's not anymore, and then you're like, hey, what's up? Yeah, you know what, I'm good, I'm tired, and I'm just going to stay in, right? Yeah. And then you go to the next one, wanting to chase the next thing, that experience that and a lot of time in marriage this comes to uh, uh, a eventual point where it's tough to kind of make the marriage work. What do you do when you get to that point where you sit there and you say, I, am, I, ha I love you, but I'm no longer in love with you. You've heard that statement yes, before, right? Where a lot of right. people say, I say, so what's happened between the two of you guys? Pat, I'm not gonna lie to you, man. I love, I love her a lot. I'm just not in love with her anymore like I once was. What does that mean when people say that to you? Well, that's normal. That's what happens to everybody. And um, we just, our, our, our brains were simply not wired to have this in love feeling last forever. Um, you know, companionate comes uh, from the word friend, companion. And so you don't have this person you're absolutely insane over. And, and by the way, there is a way to bring back sparkles of that passionate love, which we can talk about, but it's not an everyday thing. But instead what you have is this loyal, deep friendship with another person. And that's a pretty nice thing to have. Loyal, deep friendship with another person. How, how does one in that moment know the fact that whoever else you date a year later is going to become not passionate love, companion love. How do you decipher between the two? It's a very hard thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, what is the divorce rate right now in America? 50%? It's about 50%. Okay, that's yeah. not that, they, you know, so what, what do we have, what, what are we getting wrong in this place? Because you got one community that's saying man is not built to be monogamous, right? I, it's not, I'm not built to be with one person. I don't know if you've seen Hugh Hefner make the argument. It's mm -hmm. a very good argument he makes. And then you have... It's wrong, by the way. Yeah, and tell, so tell me more. Yeah, can, I, I interrupted you. I I'm love sorry. that. Go ahead, please. Yeah, it's wrong. It's wrong. Um, human beings have a very strong mating for life instinct, just like swans and prairie voles. Um, it, it's not perfect. You know, we have divorce. We have infidelity. But if you, the World Health Organization looked at um, uh, global statistics, and they found out that by the age of 50, more than 90% of people all over the world have been married at least once. Now, that's not to say that they were absolutely faithful, wow. but marriage is an intention to have one individual for life. And 90% of us, at some point in our life, at least had that intention, and, and many of us kept it. 
have we kept it because we want to keep it or have we kept it because of some kind of a church or a belief that has made it made us uh, uh, believe that it's the right thing to do where at some point this religion was used in a way to control the populace of not you know uh, uh, pissing off each other and I don't flirt with your wife because natural instinct if I mess with your wife you're going to be upset at me if you flirt with my wife I'm going to be upset at with you upset at you I, is it a natural from us or how much of it is an institution or church or religion pass it down to us where we believe that what yeah. do you think well you know what I'm asking right? I do know what okay. you're asking yeah Human beings are incredibly complicated. You know, inside our head, we think there's one person, me, but it's actually the seething cauldron of competing motivations and goals. So we talked about drugs. The drug addict wants his cocaine, mm -hmm. but the drug addict also wants to be a good father. Now, a lot of the time the cocaine's gonna win, but we've got these competing drives. So when you get married, there's a big part of you that wants to be a good husband for the rest of your life, but you can't help it. You're a human being. You got these competing drives that you see a pretty woman and you want to have sex with her. So we've got these things like the church, uh, our community, uh, our government that have been built up to support one of these drives. Um, and if we don't think that's the right thing, nobody keeps us in the church these days. You, you know, in the old days, if you wanted to be part of society, you had to go to the church or the synagogue mm -hmm, or the mosque. Mm -hmm. These days, it's much more of a choice. A lot of people choose to do it, though, because they're identifying with one of those competing drives. They're saying that, yeah, I know I've got these... Um, these interests in other women, but I don't like that part of myself. I like the good husband part of myself. And so I'm gonna surround myself with these institutions that's gonna help me stay a good husband. And I think that they're acting prudently because how many people have an extramarital affair and two years later say, best thing I ever did? No, you don't hear that. You don't hear that. No. We know it's not a good idea. Just like we know eating that third donut is not such a good idea. It's a primitive drive that doesn't necessarily have our future happiness in mind when it makes us eat that third donut or have the extramarital affair. Really? What a way of you put it. Oh, my gosh. So the three institutions you said, a church, a religion, a government, what was the other one you said? Uh, community. Your community. Yeah. Powerful. Very powerful what you just said right there. Uh, regarding and anything else you have to share on the love side? Yeah, there was something I wanted to say. Um, geez, just give me a second. To we see we can come back it. if it comes back. Let's can, come back to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Because yeah. that, that topic is a, is a is a deep topic. Let's go into politics. Okay, so politics for me is an, and then and then we'll go into domination because I'm I'm curious to know what you're going to say. With and by the way, I haven't even gone through my notes. Just the conversation alone, I'm enjoying this. Just so you know this. And the the, the I told you earlier, Daniel Lieberman. You know, there's two of you. Daniel yes, Lieberman. that's right. So. Uh, uh, and both of you guys, professors, so it's kind of like, you know, it's conflicting, which is which, but I know you've done your own uh, speeches and his. But uh, next one is politics. You know, for me, um, sometimes uh, I look at people and I say, you just feel like a liberal to me, okay? In my mind. And I'll see someone, I'll, I'll just say, you feel like a conservative to me. And I'll see someone, I'll say, you're an independent. You're trying to play it safe. You're just kind of trying to stay in the middle, neutral. You don't want arguments. You're just kind of trying to, I totally understand. I respect your point. I respect your point, right? And it doesn't take long to realize if somebody's a Democrat or a Republican or liberal or a, 
you know, conservative. It doesn't take hard. A few minutes of conversations, you can kind of figure out where people are leaning. It's not hard to ask those questions. I've asked this question from Jordan Peterson. I've asked it from so many different people myself. I'm curious to know what your answer is going to be. Are we born somewhat liberal, or you know, and are we born, some of us, from the day we're born, we're liberal, a part of us, and we're conservative, a part of us? What are your thoughts on that? I think the answer is yes, but I think it's a very, very small tendency. And the reason why I say that is that um, if you look at individuals, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to find um, something they're born with that is leading them to a particular political ideology. But if you look at very, very large groups of people, mm -hmm. thousands of people, yeah. little tiny things will come out in the averages. And we can see that. We can see that. Uh, people who have different kinds of upbringings, people who have different kinds of genes, there are very, very subtle influences that we can bring out in the averages. So it's not genes, because so you're saying it's a small percentage. It's, it's not a, a big small percentage. percentage. Okay. Yeah, but it is genes. Yeah, because for me, I I say a guy asked me one time, how how do we come up with political beliefs? I said this, and tell me if you agree with this or if you see it's different. One is uh, uh, cultural. You were born Christian. Your parents, you were involved in a Christian church, and everybody there was conservative. So you kind of grew up in that environment. So tradition. The other one is. You had a fallen out with somebody. Your dad was a Republican. He made a lot of money but wasn't around. So you become a Democrat because you hate Republicans because all they care about is money. Or you grew up in a family that was a Democrat. They were all, you know, let's just say financially they weren't doing well and they were just kind of voting for a certain party. And you're like, okay, I don't want to go that way because I don't want to live that life. I'm going to go be a Republican. So you fight whatever somebody let down, lets you down in your life. So you go and become the opposite that somebody does. You hear this very common with uh, some names. Then the other one is somebody took a liking into you. You grew up with not even any political beliefs. A coach liked you, a professor liked you, a teacher liked you, and they became a father figure or a mother figure that you didn't have in your life, and they happened to be a Republican. They happened to be a, a Democrat. And you say, no one in my life has been disinterested in me as this man is. I'm loyal to his beliefs. I'm going to be a Republican. And then there's people that just kind of want to, uh, uh, they had a big life-changing event that happened to them. You were in your house and somebody came in and shot you with a gun and you didn't like guns and now you say everybody needs to have a gun because I got to protect myself. No one will ever come in, shoot somebody, my father or somebody, I need to have a gun. So a life-changing event that takes place. Would you say there's any other things outside of that that uh, determine, uh, end up somebody being a liberal or a conservative? Well, first of all, I think you make a great point that we believe that our political views are based on reason, but reason probably plays a very small role. It, it, it's the things you mentioned. And sometimes you see videos on YouTube where they go up to people on streets and they read them something that a politician said. And they say, what do you think about that? Oh, I, I agree completely. I said, well, it turns out it was said by someone on the other yeah. side of the spectrum as you. They say, well, I disagree completely. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, I think biology has something to do with it. Tell me why. So, you know, it comes back to the whole thing about the brain chemicals. Okay. We've talked a lot about dopamine. Sure. Dopamine looks to the future, um, getting more, making the future a better place. We haven't spoken quite as much on what we call the here and now neurotransmitters. Those are the neurotransmitters that help us to experience the present. And typically what we experience in the present are um, sensory inputs, which you see, hear, taste, smell, mm -hmm. touch, emotions, and interpersonal relationships. 
So some of those chemicals are going to be oxytocin, endorphin, uh, endocannabinoid. If you are born where the future-oriented dopamine circuits are a little bit stronger, you're more likely to be liberal. If you're born where the here and now circuits are a little bit stronger, you're more likely to be conservative. And again, it's a small piece, but if you look at large groups of people, you can see the differences. Very interesting. Can you talk about what you write about in your book when you said in Hollywood they measured to see what percentage of money was given to uh, Obama versus Romney, the numbers are astronomically different. Can you elaborate on that, on how, how that comes about? Yeah, so um, there are some people who we might call dopaminergic. All right. These are people who are very much focused on the future. Your listeners, I think, tend to be very dopaminergic. Um, they're entrepreneurs. Um, it takes an enormous amount of motivation, an enormous amount of drive to be an entrepreneur. I, I tried, by the way, and I failed, which is a great experience. Um, and so it, it makes you more dopaminergic. Where else do we see dopaminergic people? Well, Hollywood they're not entrepreneurs as much. We're seeing a different kind of dopaminergic person. People in Hollywood are notorious for excess, right? They always want more. It's never good enough. It doesn't matter how many starring roles you've been in, you always need to have another. It doesn't matter how many mansions you have around the world, you always need another one. We were talking about um, marriage and how the divorce rate um, among the general population is 50%. Mm -hmm. During the first five years of marriage, in Hollywood, the divorce rate is 80%. Get out of here. Because it's never good enough, right? Is it because it's never good enough, or is it because temptation's all around you? It, it's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. But I think it's more it's never good enough. So Hollywood is a very dopaminergic place. Okay. And we clearly see that there is a strong bias towards the left in Hollywood. Okay. Almost all of the financial uh, donations that were given were given to Democrats. Same thing in Silicon Valley. Uh, this is where we see the dopaminergic entrepreneurs. In Silicon Valley, they give all their money to the Democrats as well, and very little to the Republicans. Interesting. Why is that, though? Liberals have a name for themselves. They call themselves progressives. Uh -huh. Liberalism is about making the world a better place. The criticism of it is that they try to make the world a better place by achieving utopia, and the only way you can do that is by having total control over society. Mm -hmm. but, but the goal is to make the world a better place, to um, plan our cities so that they will be less polluting and easier to get around, to determine what kind of education our children need, to tell people, hey, you got to wear helmets when you ride your motorcycle to say our healthcare system is not working. Let the government take it over because the government knows better and, and the government will fix it. it. It's about progress and that's a very dopaminergic thing. So where you find dopaminergic people, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, uh, academia, uh, you find people who lean towards the progressive side of the political ideology. How about the other way around? The other way around are people who are more focused on the here and now. Um, you see, they're more likely to be conservatives. What does the word conservative mean? It means keeping what we've inherited from our forebears and not letting it change. Conserve. So it's the opposite of dopaminergic change. You see this uh, these days, especially among blue-collar workers. Um, that segment of our country feels like things are changing too fast. Mm -hmm. I can't keep up with all of these 
these politically collect rules I have to follow. I can't keep up with, you know, there used to be two genders, then maybe there were three, four. Now nobody knows how many genders there are. They feel like things are moving too fast, and they're, they're the brakes. The liberals are the accelerator in the car, and the conservatives are the brakes. They're saying, hold on a minute. Let's not lose all of the good things we've inherited from the people who came before us. You know who Dennis Prager is? Mm -hmm. yeah. Dennis Prager once said, uh, conservatives are wise, liberals are smart. Mm. He says, I've mm -hmm. never met a liberal who is wise. There's no wisdom on the left. There are a you lot of... You can't say that. I you can't say that. You seriously think there's no I, wisdom on the I know it. Left. I don't say it. I How know it. I lived it. I went to Columbia. My, my professors were brilliant and had almost no wisdom. So you're saying the left is smart, the right is wise? Yes. You're really saying that? Yes, that's exact. No, not the people, the ideas. What do you think about what he's saying? Yeah, you know, um, on average, liberals do have a higher IQ than conservatives. Um, it, it's not much, it's just a few points, um, and, and again, it's an average. Mm -hmm. But what is IQ measuring? IQ is measuring a dopaminergic ability to figure out problems. Um, your IQ will predict how well you do in school. It will also predict how well, how much money you make in your career. But it does not predict how happy you're going to be. Having a high IQ doesn't help you decide who to be friends with. It doesn't help you decide who to marry. It doesn't help you decide wow. where to live. These are things that are, are not subject to IQ. So you know what? Liberals have higher IQs than conservatives, but conservatives are happier. <laughs> Holy moly. <laughs> Is this actual proven study? Yeah, yeah, it's proven. Gallup, uh, uh, in the book, we, uh, we, we've got Gallup polls that show that. Oh, that, that, if you, if you, if we get the link, I want to put, if you want to see the link, we'll get the link, we'll put we'll the link below for you to see it, that's yeah. great. So conservatives live happier lives than liberals do, even though liberals on average have a higher IQ than conservatives do. Yes, that's right. And it makes sense because if you want, if you're very dopaminergic. Interesting to me. I mean, I'm already like, I'm still thinking about it. Go, go ahead, keep saying. If you're very dopaminergic yeah. and you want to change the world, happiness is your enemy. You, you were talking about earlier, what if everybody is content? Nothing happens. Only some people in our society can be content. We need the unhappy, dissatisfied people to move us forward. <laughs> So I think it's time to smoke weed. So if you want to light it up, we're getting a little too deep right now with these conversations. Uh, but uh, okay, that's very interesting with the political side. Any other research or studies you did on the politics side that uh, uh, you know, gave you some kind of a trend to say, this is another thing that we can talk about to, to learn about the whole liberals and conservatives? Yeah, we, we looked at some very interesting research that showed ways in which scientists could actually manipulate people's political beliefs and make them either more conservative or more liberal. Scientists? Yeah. How? Yeah. W uh, ways that you would be very surprised. Let me, let me talk about ways in which they were able to make liberal people more conservative. Um, they took a bunch of students and they had them fill out these questionnaires looking at their political ideology and they could give them a score how liberal, how conservative they were. They divided them up into two groups. Um, one group, um, they had to fill it out and there was a hand sanitizer nearby. 
The presence of the hand sanitizer made them more conservative. The presence of the hand sanitizer made them more conservative? That's right. The other group, there was no hand sanitizer. On average, this group filled out their questionnaire in a more conservative way than the other group did. Why is that? The reason is the hand sanitizer is a sign of threat. It reminds you that you are at risk of becoming infected. It's a tiny, subtle intervention, but it reflects a much larger intervention that we all understand. Terrorist attack uh, make the country more conservative. Uh, if there's an election coming up and there's a terrorist attack around the time of the election, the polls shift in favor of the conservatives. Wow. Because when you feel under threat, you say, I need to protect what I have. It's when you feel safe that you say, let's take some risks. Let's make the world a better place. That's dopamine. And just the hands. Now, what's funny is election season's in November. Yeah. Uh, that's flu season. So when you go to your polling place, you might see a little thing of hand sanitizer sitting on the table. I don't think they know. So if the RNC or the DNC is watching this, the RNC needs to get a bunch of hand sanitizer under like polling right outside here. Let me put some hand sanitizer and the DNC's got to pull all that stuff out. That's right. That is so interesting. Some guy once said that when you go to the bathroom, <laughs> you know those signs that said employees must wash their hands? Yep. Those, are, those are advertisements for the Republicans. That's, are you kidding me? Who did this study? Uh, I can't remember. In the book, it's in the book. That's um, crazy to me. Now, we can do it in the other direction, too. Uh, so different, different group of scientists, um, very similar kind of questionnaire. And they told people, imagine that you have superpowers and nothing can hurt you. Yeah. So I just want you to spend five seconds uh, just imagining you have superpowers and nothing can hurt you. Shift people to more liberal. Because it's the opposite. You take the threat away. A lot of conservatives have fears. Um, how are immigrants going to change the country? Um, how are people who are different from me going to threaten my way of life? If you can lower those fears, they will um, become, in, in subtle ways, not dramatic, but in subtle ways, more liberal. Who's better for society, or they both need each other? We need both. Yeah, Cars need both an accelerator yeah. and a brake. We that. need that balance. See, I'm right there with you. Yeah. I fully, that's why you have a left wing and a right wing. I think that's right. I'm fully with you on, uh, on that. So like, like currently right now with impeachment, is the, is the wise decision being made or the smart decision being made? You know, we're talking about theory. Mm -hmm. When theory turns into practice, it becomes much more complicated. Because opinions tie to it or? There's just so many other things at stake. Um, so is impeaching the president a liberal thing to do or is it a conservative thing to do? Is it a dopaminergic thing to do? Is it a here and now thing to do? It, it's just a game of power. Uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, this is my political ideology. They get to Washington, D.C., and a lot of times it just becomes about what's convenient, what will get me power, what will get me reelected. You know, we saw the Tea Party come mm -hmm. out because mm -hmm. what the conservatives were finding... When was the last time you heard about him? You haven't heard about him for eight years. I haven't heard about him yeah. for a long time. Long time. Yeah. Michelle but, Bachman, all those guys that were coming up. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah, but they came for a reason. The reason they came is because conservative voters elected Republican politicians the Republican politicians went to Washington and behaved in liberal ways. 
uh, they expanded the government. They raised taxes. They, the Tea Party Bush. said, we're electing you guys, and, and you're, 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 you're growing the government. Mm -hmm. And so the point is that when you have real people doing real things, theory breaks down. When you have real people doing real things, theory breaks down. Yeah. And I wonder how many times like the one party is mimicking the other side's habits and they don't even know they're doing it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you're yeah. going to do this to me? I'm going to do this to you. But you doing the retaliation is not your way of doing things. You're retaliating like a liberal or you're retaliating like a conservative because you're mimicking what they're doing to you. And so it's a form of revenge, but you're not being true to your own way of thinking. That's, that's exactly right. You react instead of act out of reason. Wow, that's, you react out of emotion. Yeah, because sometimes yeah. you're like, they're not acting like liberals. They're acting like conservatives. And they're not acting like conservatives. They're acting like, what the hell is going on? You're yeah. confused sometimes nowadays. You used to defend a war. Now you're not defending the war. You used to say the war is bad. Now you want to do more war. What's going on over here? Here. And it's it's uh, it, 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 they're losing a bit of their identity sometimes. They are, I mean, the theory of the republic is that we we elect people to represent our views. But how many laws are passed that the majority of yeah. Americans don't want? Yeah, that's yeah. That's so okay. So so let me ask you. So you got people that come out of high school, people go to college, and there's those that say, I just want to go make my money, make millions, leave me alone. I'm going to be a libertarian, whatever. I'm just going to go do that part. And then there are those that go into politics and they say, oh, yeah, here's how I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to have control in the laws I'm going to make. And I'm going to be able to get to control people with the decisions that I want to make. And I'm going to go this side. Now, some people go into politics to want to do good, but some people go into politics for power versus freedom. Do you see a trend with people who chase money, they're typically seeking freedom versus those who chase power they're seeking, uh, uh, you know, chase politics. They're more seeking uh, power. Do you, do you notice that? Because sometimes mm -hmm. you're from academia, okay? Mm -hmm. So I went to Harvard's OPM program, okay? And OPM program, you know what the program is. It's the owner-president management program. Mm -hmm. You have to do a certain amount of top-line revenue, and they bring people from 60-plus countries, 140 CEOs, uh, founders. You kind of spend three weeks together on campus. So I went there, and I experienced what it was like to be on the campus. And I watched all the professors. 90% of them were all liberal. Mm -hmm. I went during the time where Trump and Hillary were debating. One of the debates, I was there at the chow hall with a thousand of them. And not one person mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. yeah. you That's know, right. hey, great. And everybody, oh, you're such a this, you're a bigot. It was crazy. So I'm just kind of sitting there watching everybody just to kind of get a feel. So to me, sometimes I wonder if academia and politics they're going to have power and decision-making process to, to see that they can have a little bit of control over you. And the guys that go on the money and you know, business side, they're just kind of trying to be like, leave me alone. Do you see that as a trend with the wiring or not really? Yeah, I think the academia is a little more complicated. And if we have time, we can wanna, get into know it. About it yeah. But let's just talk about um, politicians yeah. and um, business people. Okay. So um, somebody starts a business. Mm -hmm. um, they want that business to grow and be successful. Of course they do. There's absolutely no question about that, right? Somebody goes into government, they want the government to grow and, and, and be successful. And so I think that there is naturally going to be some conflict between the two of them. Um, because people go, look, let's, let's, um, let's take the best view of this we can. People go into government to make the world a better place. If you don't have power, you can't make the world a better place. They believe that or that is the truth? 
Well, uh, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. You know, uh, not all of them do, but again. I, I think they go in for the right cause, by the yeah. way. Yeah, I mean, human, I actually humans are complicated. Yeah, there's I, both. I, I think there's it. both. Yeah. yeah. So um, they, they want to grow the government so that they will have the power, the levers, to make the world a better place. Um, they need to collect taxes in order to spend money on building roads and bridges. Um, and, and so they want to collect more taxes so they can build more roads and bridges. Uh, the people uh, who are running their own business, though, they want the opposite. They say, look, all of your taxes, all of your laws, all of your regulations are making it impossible for me to be successful. Leave me alone. Give me my freedom. So I, I think in some ways they both want the same thing. They want to maximize the good they do while they're on this earth. But at the same time, they're in conflict. Who gets in the way of the other person the most? I'm not sure about that. You, you're not sure about that? I'm not sure about really? that. Really? You're not sure about well, that? The government's probably going to get in the way more, just because the government has a monopoly on power. Of course they do. If you're not doing what it likes, yeah. they can use force. The, um, the business people can't use force. I mean, a negative review on Yelp for a congressman does what? Nothing. Yeah. A negative review for a small restaurant business owner, look what it does to them. We can put them out of business. Yeah. You can go to DMV and talk about the receptionist sucked. No one's going to read about change. it. Yeah. You can go to a restaurant and say the waiter was terrible. His name is John Doe. That guy's fired. Yeah. He's going to get written up. So, you know, it's interesting on the perspective there. I'll tell you an advantage business has, though. Tell me. Uh, so government is rigid and inflexible. Um, there's basically one idea. Um, and it's tough to move. It's tough to move. And, and when you pass a law, either it works or it doesn't. If it works, it's terrific. If it doesn't, it, it's terrible. With businesses, you got 100 businesses starting up, 99 of them fail. A and so you've got all of these ideas being tried out, uh, all kinds of flexibility, all kinds of variety. So um, I think that's the advantage of business. You've got a whole lot more flexibility. You've got the ability to try thousands of ideas and pick one that works and let all of the others fail. Yeah, I'm, and, and that's a good point. You know, uh, uh, an old uh, colleague of mine called me and I had a lengthy conversation, very successful guy. While I was in Detroit, he said, you know, Pat, you've got to realize I'm not an entrepreneur like you. He works for a very big company that's controlled by, that's controlled by a very big company. And he said... I want to come up with an idea. It's going to take me six to 12 months to get somebody. Look, I got to go committee, 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 committee. Yeah. You guys come up with an idea, you're the entrepreneur. You can execute it the name, same day or the next day. That's right. You have that. So and it's, it's okay, okay if it fails, too. Yeah, it's okay if it fails. And, and, the, and the thing that's happening, which is kind of a, a is a lot of, a lot of these too-big-to-fail companies are starting to become governments yeah. of their own. That's right. And they're experiencing that within, and uh, it kind of hurts the people that are the entrepreneur thinking within it, and they're either leaving or they kind of have to say, look, I have to kind of figure this out and stay here. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. So last thing that I want to talk to you about, you talk about domination in the book and dopamine. Why domination and, and dopamine? I mean, how do those go together? Yeah, so uh, dopamine is all about maximizing future resources. Now, we've mainly been, and there's different circuits in the brain that use dopamine. We've mainly been focusing on the circuit we call the desire circuit. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that makes you want things. It mm -hmm. gives you energy and motivation. Mm -hmm. um, something that makes you want the donut and the sex. Okay. There's a different circuit, though, that we call the control circuit. And from an evolutionary point of view, it's a newer circuit. It goes up here in the frontal lobes. And it takes a longer-term view of the future. So the desire circuit may say, I want to eat that donut. 
the control circuit may say, you know what, that might make us happy for about 30 seconds. But if we look ahead a month, a year, five years from now, we're going to be better off not eating that donut. So it's the control circuit that gives us a much more sophisticated way of maximizing our future resources. And it allows us to use tools like abstractions, such as science, mathematics, language. And this is where we really see the powerful tools the human brain has for changing the world and making it better. Please, go ahead. And that's, that's about domination. We're using this long-term, sophisticated control circuit to absolutely dominate our environment. To dominate our environment or dominate an industry or same thing? It's really about dominating our environment. Dopamine always wants more. So it's really about squeezing as much resources as we possibly can. Think about what science does in terms of our ability to get calories out of an acre of land. With every agricultural advancement, we're growing more and more food in smaller and smaller areas. It, it's getting the most we can out of our environment. What do you put the people that uh, become uh, heavy-duty world leaders? Uh, are they more dopamine-driven, or what makes them want to go through the pain of being a world leader or president? Whether you put Hillary there, or Bill there, or Donald Trump there, or Obama, or Reagan, or Bush, or you know, or some of the even world leaders on the other end. I mean, uh, Erdogan from Turkey and some of these guys that become dictators. What causes someone to want to have that kind of power and influence and put their body through and their emotions through the pain that comes with it? Yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. Is it dopamine? What, what it's is dopamine, yeah. And so they just yeah. want it at the highest level. They want it more than everybody else. Yeah, that's right. They want power more than anything else. I mean, you look at these leaders. They are not happy. Uh, uh, most of them. I mean, you look at Xi, the, um, the leader of China. Mm -hmm. Boy, what a miserable experience Seriously. that's got to be, right? Yeah. I, I mean, he's, he, he's trying to keep absolute control. Things could fall apart at any moment. He's got to deal with the trade dispute with Hong Kong. He, he's, he's got um, all of these things. It's got to be absolutely miserable. Why would anyone want to be that unhappy? And why would you sacrifice everything for that level of an unhappiness? It's not reason, it's instinct. Uh, it's brain chemicals, and it's primarily dopamine. It's instinct. So I want more power, I want more control. And let me ask you, does it, when if somebody is more driven by a communistic philosophy than the democracy that we have here, does that mean the person of communistic philosophy wants even more power and control than another person? Or you? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. I, I think that people view communism in different ways. I mean, ideally, when you have communism, the government is supposed to shrivel up and dry off, right? Right after, I mean, I think that's what Karl Marx said. Once communism is perfected, it's not possible. You, it's not possible. It's not of course possible. not. No. But, but I think that, yeah, it's not possible. It's not possible. No. It's not possible because, <clears throat> because everybody is, I just had a conference call right now, okay? Right before you, and when you were out there, I was just doing a conference call. And uh, uh, the conference call that I had was my, with my main guys, not my uh, uh, executives, because we have a, a couple hundred executives. It was with my vice presidents. These are guys that are all making very good money for them. So it's ranging from a quarter million to a couple million a year. They're, they're doing good for themselves. And the conversation went about, you know, why are you waiting on me? Like, this is you, you take the lead and do this part. Now, a lot of them were doing the right thing, so it's not everybody. It was like half of the group I was talking to. 
about taking the responsibility where you go lead this initiative. This is your initiative that you're leading. And he says, does that make sense? I said, I'm not your boss. I said, I'm telling you, I'm not your boss. You're not, I'm not, you're not my employee. You're all your own business owners. You're running your own franchises, your own you know, independent contractors, franchise model, but you're running your own deal here. <clears throat> Why are you relying on me? In a communistic philosophy, everybody's relying on one person to make, because what I'm already doing, I'm saying, you know what? No problem. You know best for me. Make the right decisions for me. You see what just happened? Yeah. Please make the right decisions for me. Go. Who wants that responsibility? They say, you, you want to be God. Why would anybody want to have all the right responsibilities? Sounds terrible to me. Sounds terrible. Yes. And you got some people that are still using that regime, and it's going to be interesting to see how long they last. What's, what's always funny to me is when some people want that regime, but they've never lived under it before. Yeah. When some people think, can you imagine what if the right virtuous person showed up and they did this? Yeah, you yeah. know, it's, a lot of it sounds uh, you know, like coaching. You know, you read a lot of books and people who have never coached, you know, power of this and power of positive thinking. You got to do this. And you go watch Belichick. I mean, if Belichick wrote a book on coaching, you realize it's like some people will be like, if he actually wrote what he does to coach, actual, not, you know, uh, what you read about him uh, written by somebody that... It's a very different world to be a general, to be a coach, to be a leader than it is to do anything. But uh, I think pretty much yeah. everything looks different from the outside. Than when really like, no doubt yeah. about it. This is why yeah. sometimes you read the books, you wonder, like, is it really about him or not? You know, you, yeah. you hope to see the darker side of the person because everybody's got it. I want to know that part of the person. Yeah. I don't want to know the person. Like, we learned about you like Hustler Magazine when you were kids. <laughs> see, that's great. Penthouse, not Hustler. Penthouse, my apologies. <laughs> it's Penthouse Magazine. You are officially human, okay? Here's yes. a professor who's like, psychiatrist, you know, a, a, a doctor who's talking about that. I want to know those things because sometimes that makes the rest of us think we can also be human. So I got to tell you, brother, I cannot even tell you how much fun I had with you. I'm not going to lie to you. I had no idea what to expect. Sometimes I bring the educators and professors and within 30 minutes, I'm knocked out sleeping. You just don't know I'm asleep. But I had incredible time with you. I don't know. How long have we been talking, by the way? Hour and a half? Wow, it just went That's by. That's the point. Most of them, yeah, so to spend an hour and a half to get it, this is a very interesting topic. What I want to tell you guys is, if you haven't yet read this book, it's a very, very important book for you to read. Having said that, Dr. Daniel Z. Lieberman, thank you so much for Thanks coming. Thanks so much out. for having really me. Really enjoyed it, man. I really did. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.